This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. This week's episode of Meat in 3 is inspired by the reemergence of Cicada Brood 10. We're talking all about insects. Some people are calling crickets the gateway bug because that's a great introduction to what edible insects is all about. So we found detectable levels of cesium-137 in 68 of 122 total honey samples that we had. Ah, what is that? Is it tarantula? No, what is it? It's a tarantula. Oh, and they're going to eat it? No, 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 no. Listen to Meat in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm your co-host, Valerie Lomas. And we have a very special guest for you this week. Idrik Goudet is a chef and entrepreneur in Detroit, uh, creator of many projects, which we're going to get into now. Idrik, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. This is such a pleasure. So happy to be here with you guys. There's a long list of, of things that you've led and started and run. Uh, why don't you give us a little overview of, of <laughs> what you're up to these days? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I do have my hands in a couple different things, but, you know, they are all really uh, interconnected in different ways. So uh, I am originally from Louisiana. And so I uh, moved up to Detroit after I graduated college. Uh, and so I'm in the process of opening a Cajun and Creole restaurant, bar and music venue called Gabriel Hall um, to the east side of Detroit. Um, so currently, um, up until we open our doors, we are catering and doing pop-ups all over Metro Detroit. Uh, and then along with that, um, I started um, a consulting agency called In the Business of Food. I've spent the past 20 years uh, in the restaurant industry working in different capacities. Uh, and so just utilizing all of, uh, you know, everything that I've learned, um, the knowledge, skills, um, to um, put that, you know, really care that in a consulting agency to help uh, small local food entrepreneurs to grow and scale their food businesses. Um, so anywhere from building curriculum, facilitating workshops, um, consulting, doing some coaching, um, that all falls under in the business of food. Uh, and then most recently, um, I did co-create um you know, started an initiative uh, that we're turning into a business called Taste the Diaspora Detroit. Uh, and so we launched during Black History Month. And really the idea was to um, showcase and celebrate um, the foods of the and the cuisines of the African diaspora. And so through Black History Month, uh, we featured four different cuisines um, from African to Caribbean to Creole uh, and partnered with Black chefs, Black farmers and Black food makers uh, to create dishes and sell those in a shoebox lunch um, to the community. And it was received really well. Um, so we'll be working on uh, we're working on an event for Juneteenth as well as supplemental events throughout the year. 
Uh, so, wow. yeah. There's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, a lot going on. <laughs> and then uh, I am the, the lead chef of Make Food Not Waste, uh, which is an organization that is dedicated to reducing the amount of food that ends up in landfills. So most people don't realize that 30% of all the food that is grown in the United States ends up in a landfill. And that's a lot of food. Uh, so we're trying to reduce that. Um, and then I also work with Detroit Food Academy as a classroom facilitator. So um, teaching students in the after school program about culinary business and entrepreneurship. Uh, so as you can see, uh, definitely uh, food and business is uh, super important to me. And, and all with this kind of common theme of, of social impact and supporting early stage entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs of color. Um, yes. How do you... How do you sort of bring those themes together, food and business and and that social impact side of it together? Um, well, like I said, a lot of it is uh, very much interconnected. Uh, and, you know, even with um, something like Taste of Diaspora, Taste of Diaspora Detroit was really born out of um, uh, an initiative that I led with Make Food Not Waste. And so for the holidays, we, you know, of course, throughout the pandemic, we have so many more people now that are food insecure. Uh, and so uh, we wanted to make sure that those people had meals to celebrate the holidays with their families. So we rescued food and was actually able to provide meals uh, for 5,000 Detroiters uh, for Thanksgiving and then 6,000 meals for um, the Christmas holiday. And we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just you know, uh, Christmas morning, you know, the family standing in, you know, what we call this, this poverty line and getting a bag of potatoes and some onions and then figuring out how am I going to make Christmas dinner from this? We really wanted to, we partnered with different chefs and restaurants all across the city to create these really beautiful um, meals that families would really be proud to put on our tables. Um, so when they came to pick up the day before the holiday, um, it was just like they picked up their catering from their favorite restaurant or chef. Um, so it was packaged nicely. It was done really in the spirit of joy um, and not desperation. Uh, and it, it really turned out really beautifully. So um, partnering with, you know, doing that would make food not waste. But then knowing that I have students with Detroit Food Academy, who's again, families were um, affected by the pandemic. We were able to partner with um, Detroit Food Academy to get those meals to families of our students, along with like cooking equipment and recipes. So bridging that gap and then using that as a lesson to teach the students about food waste. Um, and then the same with Taste of Diaspora, um, partnering with different farms, um, particularly for Black History Month, we partnered with Oakland Avenue Farm. So we didn't just show, we didn't just sell shoebox meals, but we also gave away a um, hundred meals to food insecure families um, because, you know, everyone should have access to these um, things like what we served in the shoebox lunches. That's not just nourishing your body, but it's also educational. And we wanted to make sure that we provided that access to all of those in our communities. Um, so when folks um, that needed that picked up their USDA food boxes from Oakland Avenue, they were also provided with a free shoebox meal so that they could participate in those initiatives and learn about the different cuisines of the African diaspora as well. Wow, that's that's amazing, and I love I love the like the intention of of the dignity of serving um, of serving people food and meals that, you know, like you mentioned that they can be proud of and like the thoughtfulness behind it. Um, and then that educational component, um, you know, I, and I, I have a, like a more general question 
because, you know, the numbers that you cite about food waste, it's staggering. Um, how is it that you guys are kind of working to bring this to front of mind for people? Because I don't think this is something that many of us think about here in this country. Absolutely. And to be honest, I mean, like I said, I've worked in the industry for over 20 years and it wasn't always something that was top of mind to me as well. Um, you know, I've, I've been, of course, composting for for a long time, but so much waste happens um, in on the food service restaurant level, but people hardly ever think about the waste that happens on the home level. And most of that waste does happen at home. And so not only are we educating people through um, picking up meals. So what Make Food Not Waste is, uh, we have a Make Food Not Waste, what we call the upcycling kitchen. And so um, I mentioned how we fed 5,000 Detroiters for Thanksgiving and then another 6,000 for Christmas. Well, we wanted to continue that on a weekly basis, um, of course, on a smaller scale, but continue that because food waste doesn't go away. It, it, you know, it's not just something that happens around the holidays and then it goes away every other day of the week. It happens every day. And there's so much food in the pipeline, of course, that um, farmers had already, you know, planted and were harvesting and that was in the pipeline. And we were trying to figure out, OK, how do we what do we do with all this food that, that needs to be rescued that shouldn't end up in landfill? So Make Food Not Waste created what's called an upcycling kitchen. And so every week I have the pleasure of rescuing food and then turning them into delicious, um, nutritious um, and really thoughtful meals for families um, that are that are struggling. They may have lost their jobs or they may not just have time because they're trying to work two and three jobs. They have um, kids that are going to school virtually, so they're at home. And so we're now up to feeding 175 families a week. Uh, and not only do we feed those families, but when they pick up their meals um, on Fridays, we um, also provide recipes. Um, information about food waste. Um, but one of the other ways that's really been um, super important and also really fun um, is that uh, we also teach virtual cooking classes. So we've been contacted with people, not just in Michigan and in Detroit, but really all over the country that's interested in these food waste classes um, for their employees and residents of buildings. Uh, and so we've been doing those pretty regularly, which is super fun, but that's just been a really personal way that we've been able to connect with people and not just teach, not them, just give them those numbers, but really give them practical ways of how they can reduce food waste in their home by doing virtual cooking classes and then just doing demonstrations on um, how you can use something that you normally would have thrown away. I think one of my favorites that we've done uh, in the kitchen, but also we've talked about in a demo in our classes is... Um, you know, things like collard green stems and mustard green stems and turnip green stems. So a lot of times, you know, we'll take we'll take the leaves off of the stems and then we'll compost or discard the stems in some kind of way where you can. What we did was we actually took the stems, we boiled them down and we made a pesto from mustard green stems and turnip green stems and collard green stems. Um, Mix it, of course, with some basil and garlic and um olive oil, but we made a collard green stem pesto um, and served it over spaghetti noodles. And it was probably one of my favorite dishes that we've done so far. It sounds delicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want, I want some. <laughs> <laughs> it was really delicious. Like, I can't wait to do it again. And then we actually did some with some Brussels sprouts too. We made a Brussels sprout pesto. 
how did, how did you get into food in the first place? How did you learn to cook and, and decide to pursue it professionally? Yeah. So, um, you know, with me being from Louisiana, food is definitely a way of life. Uh, it's just what everyone does. And I didn't think that it was anything special that I cooked or I wanted to cook. It was just what everyone did. So if you ask my mom, she'll definitely tell you that I've been cooking since I was three. Uh, me and my sister, uh, would get up on Saturday mornings and we would cook my, our parents breakfast in bed. Uh, you know, these kids that thought that every Saturday we would surprise them with breakfast in bed. Right. And so that's, that's the cutest thing I've ever heard right? you as a, as a barely a, like just a toddler. Yes. my sister is three years older than me. So she was six. I was three. And we would make it in the microwave. So I learned how to scramble eggs in the microwave. Um, I learned how to make grits in the microwave. <laughs> I put toast in the toaster. And that was that was the surprise breakfast in bed that we would serve our parents every Saturday. Your, your parents That's a whole meal. Were, yeah, and they knew what they were doing. They, <laughs> they they lined it up right at the beginning. Right. So um, so yeah, so I think, you know, whenever I look back on that. Um, I think that I fell in love with the hospitality of it all before I fell in love with the food, you know, because you get that instant gratification of someone saying, oh, my God, this is delicious. Oh, thank you so much. And then I fell in love with that first. Um, and also my grandparents so my mom's parents lived across the street from us and my grandfather had three gardens. And so I grew up in the gardens with him. Um, he would also raise hogs. So I grew up, uh, you know, him raising hogs, hogs and then us harvesting them. Um, in November. Um, I grew up with him hunting and fishing and shrimping and him smoking his own meat and making his, you know, grounding up cayenne pepper because he grew his own peppers and dried them. Um, so I grew up really with us um, eating what he grew. Uh, and so I grew up around food. It was always super important to me. And as I said, everyone, not just in my family, but everyone cooked and it's what we did. Uh, and that's definitely how we showed love. You didn't walk into someone's house without them asking you, you know, baby, you want something to eat? And you couldn't say no. <laughs> uh, it would be offensive if you ever said no. So, um, I definitely fell in love with the hospitality. Then I fell in love with the gardening and actually farming and growing food and harvesting food. Uh, and then probably when I was a teenager, um, you know, I'd be, the kids would be outside playing and I would be inside watching cooking shows. And then I go experiment in the kitchen. And uh, it really wasn't until, but you know, again, it was something that everyone did. I never saw it as something that was even possible as a career um, because I definitely didn't see anybody that looked like me uh, on TV when I'm watching these cooking shows. And so um, it really wasn't until probably I think my senior year in high school, um, a chef John Falls uh, came to cook lunch at my high school. And that was the first time that I kind of come face to face with like a real chef. And I was like, oh, this is act. like I didn't I didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't know I could be this. Uh, and I think it was then that I realized like, oh, I can do this because I, I never wanted to go to a job that I hated. I wanted to go to do something that I really enjoyed um, and realize how much I loved food. Um, and so, yeah, so I got accepted, accepted to Johnson and Wales University. I ended up because I wanted to probably at 17, I said, you know, I think I want to own my own restaurant. So instead of going to culinary school, I actually went and got my bachelor's in business management and figured out, learn the business side of, of a business first. And then oh, I can always go back to culinary school later. And so that's what I did. I 
got my bachelor's in business management, moved up to Michigan and worked all through the restaurant industry in different positions, including management and operations. Uh, and then eventually went to culinary school. Yeah. Wow. That's such like a wise decision to know that, you know, you are interested in both the business and culinary side and, you know, using that opportunity of, you know, a more a traditional college degree um, when it's probably a little bit, you know, it's probably a little bit easier to, to get that kind of degree, you know, af- like right after high school. I think it becomes a little bit more challenging after you enter the workforce and then you kind of, you know, have to make pretty huge life adjustments. Mm-hmm. Um and, and can you tell us where you grew up? Because, um, you know, I'm from Baton Rouge and I, yeah, I, hey I'm girl. just listening. <laughs> yeah. I, and listen, like everything that you're saying about how integrated food is into culture. And I also love what you're saying about not quite understanding that like, Hey, you can make a career out of this. So like, you know, Tell us, I guess, a little bit more about that and like how how it was that you had kind of the foresight um, at at such an early age, because I think also for a lot of people, you know, who go into the culinary industry, it does end up being something that's like the thing after they already Mm -hmm. did a thing. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let me answer your first question as far as where I'm from. I'm from a small town called Wildest, Louisiana, right in between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Um, so while I don't know if you've ever heard of Wallace, Wallace sits right on the Mississippi River and it is actually the home of the Whitney Plantation. So the Whitney Plantation is, is one of the only plantations in the United States that's actually dedicated to more so the lives of the enslaved people um, instead of, you know, the beauty of the home and the land and the crops and the architecture. Like, no, it's really telling that real story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. I I have I have been to the Whitney Plantation. Um, so yeah, okay, wow. That's I mean that's that's all pretty deep to even like grow up in that area. But at the same time, like it is just also just so rich agriculturally. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned like growing up with your grandfather who who shrimps and smokes yes. meat and does all the things um, like what kind of effect did that have on you at, at, or how does it affect you now when you think about food and how you are your approach to food now living, you know, Absolutely. in the Midwest? Yeah, you know <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> and that's the thing, like you get, you know, my grandfather, so my grandmother passed away when I was six, I was pretty young. And then my grandfather passed away when I was about 16. And so I didn't know what it was to go to a grocery store and buy produce until after he passed away because we ate what he grew and he grew all kinds of things. And so I was exposed to all kinds of fruits and vegetables and, you know, different dishes because of what he hunted and definitely what I, you know, what we find in a grocery store has is nothing compared to the flavors um, that is in, you know, homegrown produce. Um, even something like, you know, he would grow his own red peppers, dry them, and then he would grind them. And so we would have fresh ground cayenne pepper. And that the level of like spice and purity it has. And then when I had like, you know, little, you know, because he, he would keep them in bottles. 
and old um, hot sauce bottles. And so, uh, you know, when we, after he passed away, we still had a few bottles, but once the bottles were gone, then we had to go to the store and actually buy ground cayenne pepper. And I remember the first time I got it and I was just like, what is this? Like it had no flavor. It had no spice. I had to use triple of what I would normally use, you know, of what he, but I, I had no I didn't know what that was like, cause I, I, I grew up right. with him doing it, you know, doing it himself. And so you get used to, and unfortunately you get used to that. I got used to now having to go to the grocery store and buy everything I need. And then especially once I moved up here, but I will tell you, um, Detroit is so beautiful. Detroit reminds me of home in so many ways. And most people don't realize how much fertile soil Detroit has and how many um, urban farms and gardens there are in Detroit. Um, before the pandemic, I think there were over 18, there were close to 1,800 farms and gardens in the city of Detroit. And after the pandemic, because more, more and more people realized that they should be growing their own food, um, and there's over 2,000. So there are over 2,000 farms and gardens in the city of Detroit, and it is just uh, absolutely beautiful. And so to be a part of that community really brings me back to being home in the garden with my grandfather. And so I've really appreciated um, Detroiters. Uh, I've really appreciated this community. I've really appreciated those organizations that, you know, provide seeds and teach you how to grow, um, because I definitely I'm not. I don't have much of a green thumb. I didn't. I should have paid a lot more attention uh, to my grandfather, but it definitely makes me feel like I'm back at home in the garden with him. Um, and I had an experience um, at Keep Growing Detroit, and I was volunteering on their farm one day. We were harvesting garlic scapes. My grandfather loved garlic so so much so that it seeped out of his pores. Uh, and so I remember being on this garden harvesting garlic scapes, and I had a straw hat on because I'm trying to, you know. Um, you know, just protect myself from the sun. And my grandfather used to always wear a straw hat and I'm pulling these garlic scapes and I could sit, I felt like he was standing next to me in this garden. Cause I, I could smell him. I had the straw hat on and I just felt like I was like, he's right here with me. And I think he would be super proud. Yeah. You're, you're carrying that legacy in such a very real way. And you know, when I when I'm in Louisiana, I I'm always thinking about how so how so many things are being lost, how just the simple how to of so much history of like food preparation, like, you know, your story about the grinding fresh, you know, red pepper. Or I think about like um, like, you know, like sassafras and just how we're like losing that knowledge. So, um, yes. So like, <laughs> I, I'm curious about, you know, like how, like, I mean, that was, that's like a beautiful story about how, you, you know, you are basically like channeling <laughs> your, your ancestral energy and your efforts at being a steward of the land. And is, is that something that you see, you know, your business, like, how do you see your business kind of transitioning into into doing that at you know a potentially different scale or do you or do you see that because I'm like sitting there and I'm like yes we we need that we need you (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, one of the things that is definitely super important to me right now is being good stewards of land. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I may not, we're definitely probably won't be starting a, a farm under Gabriel Hall, but um, definitely been um, acquired, you know, I have acquired some land to grow, to start to really grow uh, my own produce um, for personal use. Um, so, yeah, so that's definitely something that's super important to me and carrying that legacy, um, regardless if I'm in Louisiana or if I'm up here in Michigan, uh, but definitely want to make sure that I continue to channel my ancestors and continue to really uphold that legacy. Um, I recently was uh, gifted, or Wake Food Not Waste, uh, was gifted a few um, pigs uh, by a farmer on the other side of the state. So I had about, I want to say about eight suckling pigs um, that I roasted. And even in that, it was so, you know, it was kind of ceremonial and, um, and definitely made me think about my grandfather and my ancestors because, you know, we would harvest pigs. Um, my grandfather, again, my grandfather would, would hard, would grow, um, would kind of get, you know, get hogs and he would, we would then slaughter them, but it wasn't just him, uh, you know, many families in the, in the, in the area would do that. And so it was very communal. Uh, we would, you know, once our pig was fattened up, everyone would come over and we would harvest that. And then the next weekend we would go to the next family and help them. And so receiving these suckling pigs through make food now waste, uh, just felt very, uh, you know, it was very nostalgic made me think a lot about uh, how I was raised and kind of continuing that legacy even in that way. So definitely through growing, um, but not just through growing, but also through the recipes through Gabriel Hall um, and then bringing some of those, um, even some of those cooking techniques through to make food not waste. And then by even teaching my students about those things with Detroit Food Academy. Amazing. Uh, Let's take a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. This episode is brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Route 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food. And our guest this week is Idrik Goudet, chef and entrepreneur in Detroit. Um, Idrik, you're involved in all kinds of different social issues and, and the ways that they intersect, intersect with food and business. Um, how, how have you kind of decided which issues were most important or, or which would be uh, your top priorities to tackle? Oh, that is a good question, Ethan. <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, because definitely what I've realized, and I think um, in talking with other restaurateurs and chefs that, you know, want to do the right things, want to do the right things for their staff and for their community, that we realize that we, you know, we have to focus on certain, you know, only certain issues. We only have so much um, time and energy and ways that we can contribute 
Um, and that doesn't mean that all of these issues aren't important to us. But as far as really spending that time and energy fighting for certain things, we kind of have to pick and choose um, our battles in a, in a sense. Um, as far as the things that's important to me, um, it's really things that um, I think about um, as I was, you know, whether I was growing up in Louisiana or I was growing up through um, the restaurant industry um, or I was going to school or, you know, things like that. So the education piece is really important to me. And that's one of the reasons why I chose to work with Detroit Food Academy. Um, the you know, I didn't have uh, an after school program or even a home ec course in in, in high school um, that really um, introduced me to culinary or cooking. Uh, and God, I wish I would have. You know, so these students are light years ahead of where I was their age because at least they're getting their introduction, not just to food, but to business and entrepreneurship. So to see, you know, when we talk about food or when we do certain projects, and them going, I'm going to start my own business. You know, I'm going to start my own food business or some of them have their own food businesses now and to be able to help them and walk them through that. So um, that's why something like that is so important to me because it's, it's not anything that I had, um, but I definitely wish I, I did. Um, and I know that it would have been beneficial to me now. Um, again, things like food waste, um, because growing up in Louisiana, kind of eating what you grew uh there wasn't a lot of waste that occurred because we ate what was grown. And if there was a lot of uh, something that was harvested that was growing, we would barter what our neighbors are. We would give it away. Um, so it was very community centered. Um, it was making sure that we took care of each other. And so like, again, so something like food waste and then continuing to touch the community and being part of this and grow the community is super important to me as well. So I think it's just when I look at, you know, again, how I was raised uh, and then things that I saw as I was, you know, again, growing up or younger um, and even in my career um, that I wish I know that I had. And uh, the the work that you're doing around food waste in particular, I mean, I think this this is always such a challenging issue to me because, um, you, you know, obviously everybody can, can work on food waste to a small extent in their own kitchens. Like you were talking about earlier, using parts of the veggies that you might not have used otherwise, or finding ways to repurpose, uh, ingredients. But, but it seems like the, the real volume of food waste happens way, way earlier in the supply chain, you know, before anything gets to my kitchen, uh, all kinds of fruits and vegetables, especially are being thrown away because they don't look right. Or, mm -hmm. you know, for all kinds of reasons, how do you, how do you, how do you connect those? Or how do you, how, how can, I guess what I'm asking is how can I cooking at home wanting to use the mustard green stems, um, also make sure that, that food waste is being reduced in the supply chain that, that delivered that mustard green to me in the first place. You know yes. what I mean? Yes. So that's a really great question. And I know one of the ways that we've done with make food not waste, because you're absolutely correct. People don't think about the food waste that happens on the farm. And a lot of it happens, like you said, before it even gets to a supplier, a grocery store, your kitchen, um, a farmer's market. Uh, and so it's funny that you even mentioned that because we have partnered with um, a couple of farms here in Detroit, um, one that is Keep Growing Detroit. You know, I just got a call yesterday saying, hey, you know, we have some strawberries that, you know, wasn't of quality to sell. But again, it, they're still good and, you know, good produce. Uh, and so I just picked up 24 pounds of 
beautiful Detroit grown strawberries yesterday um, that I'm going to make into a banana strawberry bread for our families next week. Um, And so a lot of that does happen at the farm. So one, you know, I know there's some initiatives around imperfect foods, um, right? Foods are ugly foods, food that's, that, you know, is perfectly fine, but it's definitely not, you know, this perfectly shaped potato or, you know, things like that. Um, and those things are perfectly, they're perfectly fine to use. So I know in a lot of different ways, we're partnering even on the farm level um, and even on the grocery store level um, to rescue foods, um, and then create beautiful dishes out of, out of those. So I don't know if that quite answers your question. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, like, it's so interesting because when I think about food waste, I can't help but think about like, if you were the person that had to go, you know, break the chicken's neck and pluck the feathers out, you're just going to think differently about that. And if, and I mean, the same thing with produce, if you have gone, if you have done the labor, like even, like even anyone who's like growing scallions and they're a refrigerator, right? <laughs> you just look at food differently when you had to like be the person, the, when the labor is like, yes, has come from, you know, your own sweat. Yep. And that's what we're seeing. <laughs> that's what we're seeing across the board. Not only are people valuing and respecting food more because they actually put their hands in the soil and they grew it. So they're, like you said, they're looking at those green onions that they're growing. They're like, I didn't take, you know, it didn't take me all these, this sweat and time and energy to grow this for it to then like go in the trash, right? I'm going to figure out a way to use these or give them to a neighbor. Um, But also what we're realizing now too, is with so many people that are now growing their food, that now they also understand the value of food. So they're willing to pay more for it because they understand the labor that was involved better than they did before. And that's been pretty monumental. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I, I'm sure Ethan, I, Ethan might have something to say about that, because this idea of how we undervalue food, is like it's a it's a recurring theme. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And and or or just how we sort of correctly value food. You know, it, we have been taught that food should be cheap, that it should be disposable, mm-hmm. that we shouldn't really care about it, uh, that that. Uh, especially processed food or food made with uh, various chemical or or sort of chemically derived ingredients is easier, um, and that's just brought down. I think as a society, our our expectation of of what food should really cost and and I guess its value more broadly uh, from you know financial as well as yes. health value. Yes. And the value of the the labor. So the farmers, the laborers, and then the front of house, the back of house, the dishwasher, um, especially as we start, you know, talking about these people being essential workers. And I don't mean, that's a whole nother conversation. But yes, yeah. um, valuing well, the food and the labor that goes into it. Well, let's let's talk about that briefly. I mean, for you as a business owner, I mean, for all of us as, as business owners, how how do we make sure that uh, that that value is being acknowledged in terms of salaries, in terms of other support systems for employees. How do you build a business that 
that uh, that does that right. Yeah, um, very intentionally. And, and, you know, Ethan, again, you know, this is something that I've spoken with other restaurant owners and chefs who want to do the right things for, you know, for their people, for their communities. And I will tell you, it's definitely not easy. You know, when you look at those numbers and you're going, I want to pay everyone $15 an hour or, or more, you know, and then you start to look at that P&L and you go, OK, how do I make this happen? Um, because, you know, yes, yeah, some of that um, some of that is going to have to be absorbed by the customer. Um, and is my customer going to be willing to pay $15 for a BLT because I am buying locally? You know, I'm, I'm purchasing from my local farmers because that reduces my carbon footprint. And I want to build relationships with those in my community and want to support, you know, urban growers. And then I want to pay my um, my staff living wages. Not only that, but, you know, try to offer them some kind of health benefits um, and, and, and support their mental health as well. Um, so, you know, those stories are necessary to be told. Uh, it's important that we continue to advocate for those things because um, they should, everyone should be paid livable wages, especially with the expectations um, on our hospitality staff. You know, at one point in the pandemic, um, I'm not sure if you guys were aware, but at one point in the pandemic, um, cooks were considered to have the most dangerous job in the country. Um, so how can someone that has the most dangerous job in the country not, uh, you know, we have to have this argument about whether or not they should make $15 an hour. Um, that's difficult. Um, and so I think if we continue, we should definitely continue to advocate and fight for, uh, for that right, um, for people to be paid equitably. Um, because, you know, the expectation is that, um, they're going to, they're a part of providing that experience and providing that hospitality. Um, and that should, there's a value to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the fact that cooks in particular are, are often invisible to the consumer, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it just makes that whole that whole argument more challenging. Right. And and honestly, I mean, I think we all also understand this conversation extends so far beyond food. Yeah. Um, and it's when as a society we start to value, um, you know, immigrant labor and and other people who have been kind of cast to the the outskirts of, of society in different <laughs> ways. Um, like at how can we expect like one industry to kind of like fix that when overall, um, you know, overall as a society, we are just so, uh, what's the, what's the right word? <laughs> trying to think of a, a somewhat, uh, politically correct way to say this, but we are very like screwed up and, um, <laughs> and, and the value we place on certain people's lives and yes. therefore their labor. Yes. And that is exactly what it is. That is exactly right. Um, you know, your back of house labor is going to be, you know, Im- like you said, immigrant labor, black and brown labor. Same thing with your farmers. Your farmers, the people that's growing your food are going to be a lot of black and brown. So I think that is is very proportionate to um, how we value those people and what they do. Exactly. So um, um, why don't you tell us to wrap things up where our listeners can find you and, and support you and your business? 
Yeah. Um, so you can basically find everything that I do um, under uh, Instagram, Ego Michelle. So it's E-G-O-M-I-C-H-E-L-E. Um, or you can find me on Facebook at Edric Godet. Um, I am working on a website for a re- redoing my website for In the Business of Food. And that'll be where you'll be able to find, um, you know, everything from the restaurant to make the work that I do and make food not waste, the consulting with In the Business of Food, as well as um, what I do with the Detroit Food Academy. So that should be up here shortly. Um, But in the meantime, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram or Facebook. Amazing. Um, As always, you can reach us by email, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And you guys can find me on Instagram at foodie in New York. Thank you to the Red Crickets for our theme song. Thank you to Armin Spengen, our amazing engineer. And most of all, Idrik, thank you so much for, for joining us, for sharing your, your thoughts and insights and, and for all of the amazing work you do. Thank you guys for having me. This was such a pleasure. Um, I, I really have enjoyed talking to you guys today. So thank you so much for having me on. Likewise, thanks. Yes. See you next week, everyone. Bye. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.